Welcome back to the Green Element podcast, where we feature business leaders and innovators transforming their operations to be more environmentally and socially sustainable. I'm your host, Will Richardson, and I can't wait to meet our guest today and help you on your journey of sustainability. Welcome to the Green Element Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today we've got um, Bruce Bratley, who is the CEO and founder of First Mile, the waste company. And I think what is really exciting about speaking to Bruce is how he has changed his business to help others through this coronavirus pandemic and not just in two months time after um it was literally almost from day one helping people and um welcome to the show i can't wait to speak more to you thank you for having me great to be here um i guess what would be great to start off with is what is your purpose as an organization so we uh, the purpose for First Mile is to help businesses and actually increasingly households reduce their carbon impact or their environmental impact. And what we are trying to do is to get people to change their habits because I've sort of been doing environmental stuff for years and the science is done. The science is half, half baked. We had a long 20 year battle um, disproving the climate change sceptics, but they've all been put to bed now. The science is done. And what we now need to do is to get people to start to do something. And the problem with the environment, it's so massive. Um, and environmental scientists make this worse by saying that there's this huge problem, global problem that we need to change. Um, and people who are sitting in their offices go, oh, my God, I don't know what I'm going to do. It's far too difficult. So what First Mile is trying to do is to get people to make small habit changing steps every single day which eventually will lead to a positive impact on the environment so what we're really trying to do is to deliver green impact services to businesses who then become greener and reduce their environmental impact on the planet and do you help with the um any kind of reduction strategies and stuff through waste um within that yeah, we do. And, uh, and my friends who are sort of outside of the environmental sector or the recycling sector say, you're crazy. Why are you talking to people about waste minimization and waste reduction um, and reuse strategies when you get paid to take the stuff away? Um, my view is there's so much of this damn stuff that it's more than a lifetime's work trying to get rid of waste. But actually, we're really interested in helping businesses minimize the amount of waste they've got. There's some real challenges around that because by its very nature, waste isn't measured. Therefore, if it's not measured, how do you get a baseline? So we've put in place technologies to give customers a baseline of the amount of material they've got by streams, and then they can see how they're progressing towards minimizing the amount of waste that they're generating. So it's a really interesting sort of um, long-term question, really, which is how do we, from a business perspective, how do we monetize customers who don't produce any waste so what we're trying to do is figure out how we can charge people um for not generating any waste but that's some years off yet but um we're we're really interested in waste minimization and we really see that as a key um 
component of delivering a green impact as a business. You've been in the waste industry for quite a long time now, haven't you? Over that time, I mean, how long have you been working in it? Um, I suppose I got interested in um, recycling back in the early 90s when I was doing my PhD in um, environmental uh, Marxism. And I, I actually studied waste incineration in Teesside in 1994. So um, that long. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> that so, yeah. so that this is, and that's kind of why I wanted to ask this question was, over that time, have you seen a change in habit with uh, waste in businesses? Yeah, in some ways it's getting more complicated because um, the waste stream used to be relatively straightforward um, and it was um, some plastics, um, lots of uh, sort of plastic bottles and containers, not so much, not, not so much, uh, not such heavy use of uh, plastic to what, what we call at first mile two-dimensional plastics, which is uh, plastic film pouches, um, contain, uh, sort of uh, two-dimensional containers. Um, and there's lots of paper, cardboard, glass, metals. It's relatively simple waste stream. In the last 10, 15 years, and partly as a consequence of um, waste minimization and reducing the weight of packaging, so it's not all bad, um, there's been a massive change in the composition of um, materials in the waste stream. And we still obviously have paper, cardboard, plastics, glass, etc. but everything's been lightweighted. Um, so we see a much higher use of two-dimensional plastics as a packaging item. So you take your classic sort of uh, detergent for um, a washing machine, used to come in a cardboard box, now it comes in a, in a, in a, in a thin, lightweight plastic pouch. Um, and which is harder to recycle, but good for the um, amount of materials and the carbon impact of that, getting that product to, to market. Um, also, lightweighting has resulted in a growing uh, number of composite materials, which are harder to recycle. And also, um, packaging scientists have got much better at, um, which is bad for recycling, but good for marketing, um, at uh, bonding different types of material together. So you get a plastic, you used to just get a Tetra Pak cube of milk, you now get a cube of milk with a plastic uh, resealable cap in it. So you've got multiple materials. So the, the waste stream has changed an enormous amount since the early 90s. Um, and from an end-of-life perspective, it just gets harder and harder to recycle. Um, and uh, we... If you're if you're manufacturing detergent or um, oat milk or whatever you're making, you might find a really nice solution for your product, but it all ends up in my uh, facility, and then we have to try and sort it out, which becomes a every year a more and more difficult job. And do you, is there any dialogue between the people designing these packages, um, the packaging, and you as the waste contractor uh it, we talked to some of our customers about some products so you know we, we talked to a uh last year a well-known um coffee brand and um got them to change some of their packaging um we've spent a lot of time working with Thornton and masons around there and they can sort of because they're premier products they can afford to change some of their packaging about making it more recyclable and reusable within that within the household um so we do but it it's 
it's at the moment it's sort of relatively small scale and the difficulty is the supply chains are really long and you get lots of you tend to get smaller producers who are really interested in changing their packaging but actually they don't, they're just buying packaging from um, wholesalers and they don't have that much control over the um, origins and the format of packaging and the people that we really need to get to change their um, view are the big companies the massive fmcgs the unilevers the procter and gambles of the world who are putting huge amounts of packaging and i don't just mean plastic packaging huge amounts of packaging onto the marketplace which we can make more recyclable and there's a you know the very famous case of lucasaid who um uh, put the the bright colored wrap around a plastic bottle which meant it couldn't be recycled because um the infrared light sorters that sort plastic bottles couldn't see um what type of plastic it was because all they could see was an orange lucasaid wrap um so there's a huge amount of work still to do down the supply chain um but things are starting to change which is positive good and it, more and more dialogue happening is probably a good thing it is indeed yeah and it's really important to sort of um, get people to talk about it but um you know i was i was talking to um on a on a um, parliamentary um, evidence committee for fashion last week, and there's loads of great stuff going on um, in 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 fashion around recycling and reuse and repair and new models. But it's tiny compared to the actual volume of clothes that are shoved down people's throats through social media and buy 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 fifty two seasons and everything coming super super cheap. And it's a tiny, tiny, tiny impact. Um, and we have got such a long way to go to shift that mindset away from high-speed, disposable, single-use items, and that's across the piece. But you know, we are there is hope. We're starting to make change, but it it, it sort of is frustrating. It doesn't start to come quicker. And the people, and it's sort of where I started. Really, is environmentalists were our own worst enemy because we're constantly talking about massive global issues that turn people off or we're arguing with ourselves about massive global issues, what we need to do is to say there's a whole bunch of stuff that we can do really easily to half our carbon impact by green energy. You know, First Mile now sells green energy. Really quick thing to do. It's really easy. It's cheaper than regular energy now. Switch, buy green energy. You're doing a massive favor to the environment. It's really easy. You can do it today. It's super simple and you save money. You don't need to do a carbon footprint for that. You don't need to do a life cycle analysis for that. You don't need to have an argument with some environmentalists down the pub. You can just do it today. And there's so many low-hanging fruit of things that people can start to do now that they just need to get on and do. But what we tend to do is we tend to go down this sort of rabbit hole of talking about life cycle analysis of whether one thing is better than another thing. You know, the number of offices I go into and they still have plastic bottles or single-use glass bottles full of water in the meeting rooms where they just put a bloody water fountain in the bin around for 30 years. So things can start to change quickly. But what we need to do is to get behaviours changed. Um, and we need to get everybody to do things slightly different day to day. There's billions of people on the planet, and we've all made trillions of incorrect choices often forced by or marketing people persuade us to make these changes, which has got us into the problem we're in. Now what we need to do is to get billions of people to make trillions of correct choices, 
And they can all be quite small, just small positive choices, like not taking the buy one, get one free option at the supermarket, like eating the crusts off your loaf of bread. They're all really small things. But if everybody starts to make those small changes, billions of people have a massive impact and will start to turn things around again. We don't need to all go out and buy a Tesla and um, turn everything green on day one. Um, you know, we can do things small, 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 small initially. Um, there's a great book um, by uh, somebody called James Clear, Atomic Habits, if you're interested. And what we need to do is to get people to start to change their habits. And it's why recycling is super interesting, because in the grand scheme of things, recycling isn't a massive environmental uh, – um, uh, it doesn't deliver massive environmental benefit. It obviously develop, it delivers environmental benefit. Um, but not massive, you know, we're much better off switching to green energy or if you look at, you know, mining or concrete production um, or um, fashion or farming or food, these all have much bigger environmental impacts if we address how we um, how we consume things. But recycling is really important. It's one of the most envir important environmental uh, activities that people can do because it changes habits on day one and you can do it every single day and you can interact with things you're throwing away and if you can see that there's something in your waste stream, it probably means there's problems further up the supply chain. You know, if you're cleaning out your wardrobe and throwing away 20 T-shirts that you've only worn once, you need to ask yourself some pretty serious questions about what uh, you're doing with 20 T-shirts in the first place, rather than um, worrying about whether you're recycling them at the charity shop or not. Um, <laughs> so I'd, I'd, I'd get changing, you know, get changing habits. If you want to get fit, don't set yourself a goal of going to the gym seven times a week. Just put your gym kit on in the morning. You know, by the time you get your gym kit on, you might go for a short run or might do something and just tell yourself you're going to put your gym kit on every morning, seven days a week, rather than say you're going to go and do an hour's workout. And it's just about that habit forming stuff. And you get up in the morning, kit on, not your onesie, and then there's a chance you might go and do something rather than lie on the sofa watching TV. That sounds really interesting. I'm certainly going to look up that book. The, um, could you tell us a bit about how you engage your staff, suppliers, and customers with your mission and purpose? Yeah, so um, we, I mean, culture is the one word um, there, really. And culture sort of, uh, we've spent a lot of time on it, really. It's a, it's a buzzword that a lot of companies throw around. Um, and they go, we've got a great culture. Um, and um, I started looking at the culture of the business because we had we took some external investment three years ago and we had loads and loads of sort of whizzy, um, smart people come around to the business that had never seen us before and said, wow, you've got an amazing culture. And I was like, right, okay. So once someone tells me something that's good, that I don't understand it, I take it very seriously. So we spent a lot of time trying to understand our culture and work on it. And if, frankly, someone thinks it's good, it could probably be better. Um, and, um, so we've spent a lot of time working on this because it is really the foundation of our success. Um, and it's all about the values and behaviors, um, that we work and live by. It's not something that magically, um, happens and it's why people love working at first mile. Um, it's the bedrock of our brand. Um, and it's sort of why we beat our competitors, win customers, and get suppliers um, to 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 um, to work with us. Um, and if you're interested in the culture, you can just Google um, first mile big green buck, or I think it's maybe just called the big buck. Um, 
and um, it, it describes our culture and what we are about um, and how we've worked towards um, sort of having this sort of uh, um, uh, winning culture, but is also a very nice uh, place to work because I'm super competitive and everyone we hire is super competitive, but we're, we don't stand on each other to succeed. We're very supportive and collegiate and look after each other. Um, we won um an award a couple of weeks ago for uh sort of uh, uh um recognizing and supporting mental health as an issue in the workplace so we do a range of things from um supporting and recognizing mental health as a workplace issue uh diversity we are a um lgbtq plus red, uh, recognized um, business. We've done a lot of work with Stonewall and training. Um, I do CEO walks in the countryside to get everyone who lives in the city out once a month and get some fresh air and talk about the business or talk about flowers um, and get out and walk in, in the countryside. We do terrarium workshops, make and mend workshops, lunch and learns, um, huge amount of work around the culture, which if you look at our P&L, you go, why are you spending all that money on it? But it delivers 10 times the investment because we have a great team of people um, that live by our values, um, which is treating people fairly um, and amazing customers while we are on our North Star mission of reducing um, businesses' environmental impact through our green impact services. Does that answer the question, Will? Yes, it does. What I'd like, so you had this investment in a few years ago and you had these whizzy people saying you had amazing culture. Was there anything that you changed on the back of that? Did you go, oh, actually, we could do this better? No, well, uh, we wrote we wrote it down, which is what the big buck is. It's the, it's the first mile big buck of the culture because we didn't really, it was just there and it's something that had, I guess, because I lead, I I... I I sort of set up, a, ironically, I set up a business, not because I wanted to be the next, you know, uh, super entrepreneur. I set up a business because I didn't like being told what to do or uh, being scrutinized. But ironically, you, you constantly scrutinize when you're the leader of a business. <laughs> <laughs> you have to, and you have to behave in a particular way. Um, but um, I, uh, I, have, I have very sort of strong ethics and a clear sort of um, way of working. And, and, and the culture sort of emerged from that. And, and the... The culture book's very much a sort of a, a blueprint of my sort of work ethics and mind, really. Um, but we'd never we'd never written it down, and the worry was um, with the business growing and and me being less, uh, you know, hands on in the business because we've got uh, you know we had a, another layer of management involved, having another layer of management involved. I didn't want to lose that essence of first mile and that culture. So the first thing we did is we wrote it down. We tweaked it. We didn't change it. Um, and when we understood it, we then invested across all of the values that deliver the culture. And we effectively, the culture is, a, is an activation of the values that you hold dear to the business. And you activate the values through behaviors and how you behave. You don't just have a culture by magic. And any business with a strong culture works on it and they work on it and everybody understands what it is and, and they understand the mission and they understand what you're doing and they understand the direction of travel that you're going on. And actually, you know, 
you know, the magic source for first mile isn't anything. It's we do lots of things differently. We do things lots of things cleverly, but you know the the fundamentals are the culture, and it's the bit. It's what gets me out of bed in the morning. It's why I come to work. Is for the people and the culture. It's the super interesting stuff, and it links directly into that piece around behavior change and 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 habit changing because we have a behavioral issue to you know everyone goes we're saving the planet planet's going to be absolutely fine what we're trying to do is save humanity how are we going to save humanity we're going to save humanity by changing people's hearts and minds and behaviors and first mind is a company that's trying to do that and if we're a bunch of shysters with terrible values or we don't understand their cultures how on earth are we going to do that so you know we can't we can't culturally to use an environmental metaphor stand on a carved iceberg that's floating into the southern oceans or the northern oceans which depending where the carving happened slowly getting thinner and thinner because we're not standing on a culturally valid foundation and we are we're trying to do that in a way that says this is how we're behaving and how we're thinking about the world and we want to bring you on that journey because we need to get you to change your behavior when it comes to that was my analogy didn't work so well there no, it did. It did. I get it. I get it. Um, it's, I think it is really hard, isn't it? It's, um, it's, it's, it's really complicated. I think this leads on to my next question of when it comes to running an ethical and sustainable business, what has been your biggest struggle so far? And can you tell us a bit about how you've overcome it? Um, uh, yeah. So um, the, um, for us, it's the, I mean, sort of getting back to the thing we were talking about at the start, which is, um, you know, recycling is a relatively new business. And fundamentally, what we're trying to do is to get people to do more recycling. Um, and um, people think it's really easy um, and you just put something in your bin and it all sort of gets taken away by magic. Um, and they don't really understand that there's actually recycling's got really long supply chains um, and they're usually quite confused supply chains because it's a very nascent market um, and not particularly well established and there's lots of data issues because it's waste therefore you you don't you don't measure it so one of the challenges really has been we're dealing in a very sort of new market I mean it's one of the exciting things and the opportunities we're working in a new market our product, if you like, which is waste, is changing all the time because there's people further up the supply chain who are making packaging or products which are uh, 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 innovating at a very rapid rate. So we, we've got new materials coming into the waste stream or new formats coming into the waste stream all the time. We then have our sort of product users, if you like, who uh, sort of have um, low levels of knowledge um, and um, very... Um, conflicting um, sources of information because they go from one council to another council and one council saying rinse out your yogurt pots another one saying we don't recycle yogurt pots at all or whatever it is so there's there's lots of uh, imprecise and inconsistent inconsistent information coming into the users of our products which then causes us problems because we can't get consistent materials and therefore it's harder to recycle those materials further down the supply chain so there's 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 um, you know a huge amount going on in that in that arena, um, and you've got a user who, and this is starting to change. You've got users who think it's waste, therefore it's the cost of managing it comes straight off the bottom line. Therefore, it just needs to be as cheap as possible, and we don't really care what happens to it. And that's sort of the the context of the market, and that's starting to change. 
and also there's that apathy around you know and people are like well i don't really care about waste it's not my core product or i don't really care about recycling and that is also starting to change so although you know we're right in the sort of nexus of the sort of environmental movement and sustainability there's a load of uh, sort of financial and behavioral issues that sort of make it quite difficult for us to sort of um, power forward. And, you know, it's not a complaint because it's, you know, everyone has those issues, but it's, it's it can be a re- real challenge sometimes. And particularly the bigger the business that you're talking to, um, the, 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 they want the big impact, the big story. But quite often on the ground, they've outsourced their cleaning or their waste management or their recycling and their people on the ground are getting squeezed um to tiny tiny margins by the same people who want a big impact and and there's some real disjointed thinking around at the moment where um the corporates and people need to get their story straight and story right um that supports recycling and supports sustainability across the piece um and actually we have some of you know the most fun and the most progress and the most action from owner managed businesses because they tend to get it and they tend to go yeah okay i get that i'm happy to pay a bit more for this i'm happy to put a bit more effort in because i can see there's a real impact here both to the environment and also to my um uh sustainability story um that i'm trying to tell um my customers um and we've done some great work with companies like lara intimates who um, make uh, um, women's underwear from dead stock fabric, and we're working on their fabric recycling. And, and there's some great, you know, some great stories out there. Um, but it is a challenge to get all of that change when um, people are still um, uh, a little bit focused on the bottom line. But it's it's changing the right direction. Could you offer one piece of advice for our listeners, which could help them with their purpose, and what would that be? Um. Yeah, the the I sort of touched on this earlier, really, which is um, don't just start doing something today. Um, people get slightly obsessed with wanting to know the truth um, before they act, and get eighty percent of the truth, and then act, and then figure out the other twenty percent. You know, we've got till twenty fifty, which is thirty years, to um, uh, become uh, carbon, net carbon uh, neutral. Um, forgotten that. What's the exact phrase? Net, net zero carbon. But basically, we've got fit. We've got another thirty years to sort ourselves out. Um, and to get there, every ten years we need to half our carbon impact. And the first ten years is really easy because there's loads of stuff you can do: buy green energy, start recycling, get an electric car, change your boiler at home. Relatively easy stuff to do, and we, all the technology exists. The next 10 years is a bit harder, but still achievable. And technology have caught up a little bit by then. And in 30 years' time, or year 21 to 30, we don't really know how we're going to get there. But the assumption is that we'll have figured it out by the time we get there. But don't worry about that, because it's we, we, we can't answer those questions anyway. Sort the stuff out that you can do now. Look at your scope one emissions. Look at your scope two emissions. Don't worry about your scope three emissions overtly at the moment. Um, and just do stuff, you know, get out there, do stuff, change habits, get organized. There's 20 things you can do tomorrow. Most of them cost you very little money. Do it, get out there. If you don't want to know and you want a list of ideas, you can DM me and I'll send you hundreds of things you can get on and do. (laughs) Brilliant. Um, And you as an organization, 
Um, I would hazard a guess are quite environmental. Um, what sort of things have you done? Um, like, is it through procurement? Is it through the managing of the operations? And what sort of things have you done as an organisation to minimise your impact? Uh, well, we, we, we work we work on this all the time. Um, we're in the sort of holding pattern for becoming a B corporation. Um, I think they're so overwhelmed with applicants at the moment, and we do loads of sort of ISO forty thousand one, all that sort of stuff. But actually, fundamentally, um, it's day to day behaviour um, that you need to um, change. Everybody in the office is super engaged around any initiatives that we've got, um, and we do loads of things to reduce our impact. But at the end of the day, 90% of our impact comes from driving trucks around cities that run on fossil fuels. Um, And we have sort of at the heart of our sort of impact strategy is our um, uh, transport agenda and our vehicle logistics agenda and and reducing the carbon impact of our logistics platform. Um, And we're doing three things in that area. One is moving to uh, electric vehicles and all of our deliveries now are on electric vehicles. We do deliveries on cargo bikes as well, but it's harder to do collections at the moment because you can't get big collection vehicles that run on electric at the moment. They have to run on diesel. Um, Where we do have diesel vehicles, we work to make sure that they're the highest standards. So we've got ultra low emission vehicles. um, And then it's about if you've got a vehicle, it's about making sure that its impact is as minimal as possible. So we have software to make sure we're optimizing routes. And then the key thing, I'm going to sound like a, a stuck record, is back to behavior. Um, and so we put a black box on all the vehicles, which monitors driving behavior. And if you've got a um, super efficient, super clean vehicle um, that has all sorts of technology to make it nice and efficient, but you drive it like Lewis Hamilton, um, it's going to consume more fuel and it's going to burn through more brakes and rub off more tire. Um, so we monitor driver behavior um, and we monitor it for safety, but a big part of that is monitoring it for environmental reasons. And we track harsh braking, harsh acceleration, harsh cornering, idling time, which is getting out and leaving the vehicle running because you can't bother to turn the ignition key. And we have a league table. And if you're at the top of the league table, there's a big prize every quarter. Um, and, um, you know, iPhones and holidays, not, you know, not, not a 50 pound, uh, Marks and Spencer voucher, like a, a prize that's worth it, but also, um, the drivers, both the men and the women drivers, um, are super competitive. And even the ones that said, oh, this is ridiculous. I'm not interested in any of that. And now fighting to, uh, fighting to get at the league table. Um, so again, it's about the behavior of things, you know, and even now electric vehicles, if you drive an electric vehicle really badly, you know, the char- we charge them with renewable energy, but if you but if you dr- if you drive them really badly, they're going to need more charge at the end of the day, which is using renewable energy that somebody else could buy, and you're rubbing off tires. And at the moment, and brakes. And at the moment, I think it's something like twenty percent of vehicle emissions are from tires and brake pads, and there's no way of capturing those. Um, mm. And so, you know, the little tiny particulates and air emission, and you know, coming to school gates and into water courses is coming from tyres and brakes. So even an electric vehicle has emissions. So this notion of it being zero emission is a, is, a, is another bit of green uh, hyperbole. So it's not zero emission. Um, and so we're constantly working on on trying to reduce. And it's what I said earlier is like, you know, we can have lots of nice stories and PR around the fact that we've got recycled paper in the office. 
makes diddly squat difference for what we're trying to do. What we're trying to do is reduce the impact of our vehicles, and that's what we're putting all our effort in. It's um, it's interesting the um, vehicle emission stuff, isn't it? Because we had a guy called Nick Molden on, um, and he his organisation monitors the exhaust in real time, um, and they monitor all new vehicles and they're trying to monitor all the old vehicles as well so you actually get the actual emissions from it and he brought up in our podcast about the tires and the brake emissions and said it's completely it is something that needs to be looked at more and um, it's interesting that your organization and you are looking at it and trying to reduce it yeah and we've done we've done work with um king's college we put um air quality monitors in the vehicles our operatives wore them when they were working around we have a um an app now um that we give to um landlords and business improvement districts where they can obviously track the uh, recycling rate and where their customers are but it also links into king's api so they can see what the air quality is in their local area so we do quite a lot of air quality mapping as well um and obviously London's air quality uh, and Birmingham's air quality issue isn't, as real, isn't isn't directly as a result of first mile, but we recognise that we contribute to that, you know, and it's why we're delivering on bicycle because you know do, using a cargo bike for deliveries is even lower impact than an electric vehicle. So um, we're doing a lot of work on it, but the whole the 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 sort of it, the the sort of ele- alternative fuel vehicles is sort of frustrating because councils and sort of local politicians want everyone to have electric HGVs and they and they sort of tar- they they sort of unfairly I not unfairly they they're unhelpfully targeting big lorries and saying why can't these be electric why can't these be hydrogen based when it actually doesn't make much environmental sense because right now we double shift the vehicle but if we went to electric we'd have to have two vehicles because we'd have to we could only use it one shift because the other shift would have to be charging and therefore the carbon impact of two electric vehicles which have got a much higher carbon impact than a diesel vehicle anyway is absolutely massive and local politicians are thinking about it from there that the ultimate in being nimbiest about things they just don't care as long as it's not they're not environmentalists they just don't care as long as it's not happening on their patch um and they just want to push all these emissions elsewhere rather than thinking about it in a more holistic um sense and at the same time they are not addressing the issue which could be addressed today which is small delivery vans because we our entire fleet of small delivery vans is electric and it's been electric for two years and they're much cheaper to run than petrol and diesel delivery vans. And what um, city mayors should be just doing is going, you can't come into the city in anything that's less than a three-ton vehicle unless it's electric because they're out there. They're commercially viable, but you've got Amazon and other delivery companies all doing this instant delivery in old diesel vehicles. And if they just said you can only come in with an electric vehicle, it would A, stop this sort of madness of instant delivery and it would get the emissions down way more than the 10% of vehicles which are HGV. So um, as a result, I'd like to announce that I'm running for London Mayor in May. I'm not. You're not. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, wow, that's pretty amazing. Because <laughs> actually, the experience that you have, and that's, this goes on to my next question, um, the experience that you have would actually be incredibly beneficial, to be honest with you, um, because you'd actually understand what's going on um, in the real heart of things and 
we, we there's a lot of talk about plastic at the moment and there is a lot of um celebrities saying no plastic and um is plastic as bad for the environment as people are making it out to be it depends where you um it depends at which point you're looking at it in in its in its life cycle really um and the issue with plastics in the oceans isn't a um plastics issue and it isn't a recycling issue it is a basic waste management issue and the fundamental reason that we have waste management as a concept as an environmental concept is to control waste after it is generated and the first thing that you need to do as a waste management person is control the waste and stop it escaping and then when you've got it you need to do something with it which is either landfill it incinerate it recycle it wash it reuse it whatever it is but the first thing you've got to do is to stop it escaping and the ocean problem is the fact that there's no formal waste management country uh, no, no there is no formal waste management in the countries where this plastic is coming from. And actually, nobody's changed what they're doing. The only thing that has changed is um, the form in which people buy things from the market because the waste disposal route is the same. And people in developing countries have always thrown their waste into rivers to get rid of it. And it just turned out it was organic packaging, which was paper bags, banana leaves, bamboo tubes, whatever it was, went into the river, didn't cause a problem. We then suddenly had um, companies, I've mentioned a few names earlier in the podcast already, selling noodles or shampoo or um, uh, cleaning products in plastic pouches, which then got thrown into the river because that's the way that waste management always happened in developing countries. And all of that plastic has ended up in the oceans. And that's the only thing that's changed is the type of packaging that we're using in developing countries. People in developing countries are trying to um, uh, increase their standard of living with better hygiene, with better food, um, and it's coming packaged in plastics. And that's what's changed. So the issue is not so much the plastic as the problem of not having any formal waste management in companies in countries where, where, the, where the packaging is coming from. And there's ways around that. I mean, there's some great innovative companies like making um, plastic out of seaweed. So when it ends up in the ocean, it completely disappears and for me that's sort of that's fine if you accept that it's okay to keep throwing material into rivers but actually what we should potentially be looking at is how do we control the waste in the first place and then let's look at its recyclability um and sort of then if you if, if you then turn your mind to sort of western economies and let's talk about the uk yes it's frustrating that we've got lots of items packaged in plastics and everyone goes to the you know the peeled satsuma that's put in a clamshell and obviously that's crazy and you know supermarket executives or purchasing people in supermarkets should be like you know put in the markets square and flogged with satsumas or something just as punishment um <laughs> but uh because uh, it's just you know stupidity really um and you know we consumers don't have to buy this stuff um but the the issue really is we're producing lots and lots of plastics um, that we can't recycle easily because they're blended with other materials. They're composite materials. You know, 60% of clothing now is made out of plastic, but it's blended in with cottons, it's blended in with other fibers, it's blended in with wools, it's blended in with denim. 
and therefore it's very difficult to um, recycle and recover it. Therefore, we need a different technology for recycling plastics, which are hard to recycle through a mechanical means of recycling. And that technology is probably almost certainly going to be some form of um, chemical recycling where the plastic is broken back down into the building blocks, the chemical building blocks for making new plastic products rather than a mechanical system, which is grinding it up, washing it, and then reforming it into a plastic product. Um, so I don't think you can escape from the fact that we're going to have plastics because plastics fundamentally are an amazing product that increase the longevity of a product. They are lightweight. They make it easy to package and move around. Um, we just need to get better at managing it. And sure, there's some, you know, you can pick loads of examples of where plastics are used in a crazy way and we should get rid of those. But fundamentally, we're going to end up with plastics. And people that say they're going to have, you know, a plastic-free world or a zero-plastic world that sort of not being realistic or honest with themselves. That's really good to hear. It, yeah, I yeah, totally agree. The um, it's that whole life cycle, isn't it? Um, people use glass once, and the um, using plastic is so much more carbon efficient than that glass. I get, what it, um, it'd be great just to understand how we connect with you more and learn more about you as an organization and um obviously all of this all of your social media handles and everything will be on our um web page for the podcast yeah sure so um uh i first mile are at first mile on twitter um similar i think we're the same on instagram we've got a weird one on linkedin but you'll find us anywhere at first mile on LinkedIn. <laughs> if you want to if you if you want to hear what i'm talking about i'm just at bruce bradley on linkedin i mainly use uh um linkedin and a bit of twitter um so if you want to hear what i'm sort of talking about uh follow me on linkedin check me out on linkedin um, the website is the the firstmile.co.uk. You can find out what we're going there. We've got a blog running on there. Um, if you are listening and you're at home, go to First Mile Home, which is just firstmilehome.com, um, and that has some home services, and you can buy green energy for your home from us there as well and, and enhance your recycling services with our First Mile Home service and we're competing in the world of podcasting you can listen to my podcast um which is available on spotify and apple and it's called wasted um so if you just uh, look up uh first mile wasted you'll find the podcast and you can hear it's not really talking about first mile but it's uh, talking we've got some uh, nice guests on there as well so you can check us out I'm obviously not as good as this podcast which is amazing oh thanks no i love the name Love the name wasted. <laughs> My friend actually that I was at uni with, um, who now he's actually just got an album out at the moment. He did the jingle. Um, it's not you know it, it it's not it's not quite the uh, Dr Dre level of production, but it's uh, it, it's uh, quite a nice little jingle. So it's done by a friend of mine. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant, Bruce. Thank you so much. And we didn't actually even though I mentioned it in the beginning. We didn't even talk about all the good stuff that you've been doing um, through this coronavirus. And I think you're, you've got lots of blogs and things. And I, maybe if we could just quickly just touch upon it. And I think it's really important. The reason why I think it's important is because what you did very quickly was look at the capacity of your use yourself as an organization and see how you could help and change. And you were delivering flowers. You were... Um, delivering food um, in your vehicles. You were 
you were doing so much more than just your normal um, day job, as it were. Yeah, so we basically, um, uh, London came to a standstill. You know, people couldn't get food. Um, uh, you know, there, there was, there was uh, nurses working around the clock and doctors working around the clock who couldn't get hand creams and um, PPE equipment and food and snacks in, in, um, in, in hospitals. So we've, we basically did three things. One, we delivered loads of stuff to hospitals, and we did that for um, NHS charities, but also at the time we couldn't talk about something, but actually we delivered um, PPE to hospitals. Um, we were paid for that um, by the NHS. And they only, they, it was quite funny, really. They, they only announced that um, uh, they only announced that they were getting help delivering PPE when the London Fire Brigade in, uh, uh, agreed to do it. Cause I think that was a bit more of a sort of sellable story than saying there's a waste company delivering your PPE. <laughs> uh, but uh, we delivered ten, we did, we delivered, you know, millions of items of PPE to hospitals. Um, we, uh, Lots of offices that were closing had loads of like really sort of mundane things like biscuits and tea bags that they were going to throw out. So we took those into into hospitals through NHS charities, UCL charity. We worked with a lot just so that, you know, um, hospital workers could get biscuits and tea and things like that in between their shifts. Um, so we did loads of that stuff, which is just sort of um, uh, in many ways, waste minimization, avoiding waste. Um, we delivered furniture to our staff so they had a nice, comfortable chair at home. We moved things around for various people. Um we then realized that people couldn't get fresh fruit and veg. So we did a deal with a wholesaler who actually was um, the dad of one of the people that works for me, who uh, had a wholesale business based up in Warwickshire that just used to supply restaurants and obviously had loads of fruit and veg that he couldn't get rid of because all the restaurants were shut. So we set up a, um, a veg box scheme in, in uh, sort of 36 hours before that went live. Um, and then we got, uh, then somebody contacted um, a woman called Miranda, who'd read in the in the newspapers on the Friday that um, garden centres who'd grown all of these uh, small plants for the Easter weekend and they'd spent since January growing all these plants. We're going to have to landfill them all um, because all the garden centres were closed. And from the Friday to the she called me on Saturday morning and said, "Would you be able to deliver plants from us, for us?" So from between the Friday and the Monday, she set up a plant delivery company um and then we had for the next month four vehicles just delivering um plants from wholesalers all over london and that was really important because it's a waste minimization um waste avoidance uh um activity but it just the amount of joy it brought to people was incredible because a lot of people were just stuck at home they had a garden which was bare soil and then suddenly they were unable to and they couldn't get to the garden center they never had time to look at the garden before um, or there might have been avid gardens that were planning going to the garden centre, and we just turned all these like brown gardens into like amazing flower beds because people could actually get out there and do some gardening. So really good for mental health as well. So yeah, it was a busy old time. Brilliant, brilliant, love it. Such an inspiration. Thank you so much for being on the show today. It's been an absolute pleasure um, talking to you and finding out more about First Mile. You're geographically based in London and Birmingham, aren't you? Are you going yeah, to be? Of, we do the whole of the UK now, but we're doing direct delivery of services in London and Birmingham. We do the whole of the UK. We've launched two weeks ago a full e-commerce website, so you can just go on the website, order services anywhere in the UK. We either deliver it direct or we'll deliver it through um, one of our trusted partners elsewhere in the UK. So we're we're open for business everywhere. Brill, brill. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Will. Great to be on the show. Thank you very much. Take care.